If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where we will be reading from this morning. Uh, We'll begin in verse 17 when we get there. Uh, So Matthew 5 verse 17. As you're turning there, uh, as Chris just mentioned, throughout this year we've been reflecting on what it is to be formed in the image of Jesus. Uh, We've seen that Jesus' life was marked by incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. Uh, These are the movements of Jesus' life. And so as we follow him, as we are formed into his image, our lives too will take on these characteristics. We too will become incarnate and present with one another. We too will follow Jesus in the way of the cross and sacrifice uh, ourselves as we live And we too will be raised and join him in resurrection and transformation. Uh, This is what it looks like. And so uh, last week, we started focusing in on this theme of crucifixion in particular. We heard Jesus calling us to take up our cross and follow him. This is what we started considering last week, and we'll continue reflecting on throughout the season of Lent. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. So as people have come to faith, uh, part of the process of formation has historically been something called catechesis. Catechesis. It's this Greek word. It comes from a Greek word that means teaching or instruction. Uh, Basically, the idea has been that as you come to faith in Jesus, there are some things that you need to learn. Uh, There are some things that we need to learn that we need instruction in. Now, historically, again, uh, something has been developed to aid this process called catechisms, right? Some of you might have heard this word before, a catechism. Uh, There are these collections of various essential teachings of faith. Uh, Many of them appear in a question and answer format, uh, and and they exist in all different kinds of traditions of Christian faith. Uh, Many of them uh, include things like the essential teachings about God, like God is Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Uh, We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, right? These are some of those essential things that are often part of catechisms. Uh, There's often also a section in many historic catechisms that focus in on spiritual practices like prayer, particularly teaching and learning the Lord's Prayer, and what it is to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Uh, That's a core uh, part of learning to follow Jesus and, and become like him. And then also many of these catechisms also often include sections of moral teaching, typically focusing on the Ten Commandments as a way of learning right from wrong. 
right? This is part of what it is to learn and follow Jesus. Now, in the modern world, people interested in spiritual formation are often very interested in theology and reflecting on who is God, what is God like, and digging into those reflections and conversations. Also, people interested in spiritual formation are perhaps even more interested in learning spiritual practices, right? Things like ways of praying, like dwelling in the Word, like spending time in silence or solitude as a way of entering more deeply into the heart of God. But then interest often begins to run short when it comes to moral teaching. When it comes to learning about right and wrong, right? All that stuff about right and wrong just becomes legalistic when you start getting into it, right? This is the stuff of law, not the spirit. It just becomes judgmental when we talk about right and wrong. However, when Jesus speaks to his disciples about spiritual life, he does not shy away from moral teaching. There are things that are right, and there are things that are wrong. And Jesus emphasizes that there is really a thing called sin that infects us all. In fact, when Jesus speaks to his disciples, he too pointed to the Ten Commandments as ways of distinguishing right and wrong. However, Jesus does not only point to the Ten Commandments, he actually points his disciples further and deeper, calling them into an even greater moral standard than these. This is because following Jesus toward his death on the cross involves our dying to sin. It involves our dying to sin. So let's listen to one of the most extensive collections of Jesus' moral teachings in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So you've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But what I tell you is that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. 
Again, anyone who says to a brother or a sister, raka, uh, an old term of contempt, uh, it's not translated because it wouldn't be appropriate to say in church if it were translated. So they just leave raka. If you say that to a brother or a sister, they will be answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge will hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, You have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them, the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous 
and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, thank you for speaking to us, your people, and for calling us to righteousness as we follow you in the kingdom. Jesus, I ask that as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as I was reflecting on Jesus' teaching this week, an image like this came to mind. Bushes can be wild and out of control, but it's amazing how clean and precise people can make them. I mean, look at some of the things that people can do with bushes. Look at that. A whole garden, I mean, spiral trees, right? It's pretty incredible. Pretty impressive. Now, I am all about beautiful artistic horticulture, right? I mean, if you can make a beautiful garden, by all means, create a beautiful garden. Gardens like this are delightful, beautiful, creative, and wonderful. But when it comes to the wild growth of sin in our lives, Jesus is not calling us to cut it into a nice, neat topiary. He's not even calling us to merely cut it down. Jesus desires even more than that. He wants sin to be entirely uprooted and removed so that it will no longer infest the garden of his beloved people. It's like what we sing usually around Christmas and joy to the world, right? No more let sin and sorrow reign or thorns infest the ground. Jesus wants to uproot every sin and remove it completely, not just to trim it back and make it look manageable. But throughout history, from Jesus' day on to now, religious people have all too often been content to just trim down their actions to a nice, neat exterior rather than doing the hard work of digging deep and uprooting sin in their hearts. The teacher and author Dallas Willard describes this approach to life as a kind of bumper sticker barcode theology. He recalls seeing a bumper sticker once on the back of a car that read something like, Christians aren't perfect, 
just forgiven. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Now, this statement is true, right? It's true. Christians absolutely aren't perfect. If you've been around one for any amount of time, you know. Um, If you are one, you know. (laughs) Christians are not perfect. And it's also true, thanks be to God, that in Jesus our sins are forgiven. Christians aren't perfect, and we are forgiven. But is that it? Is that it? Just forgiven? Willard says, this bumper sticker theology suggests that you can have faith in Christ that brings forgiveness while in every other respect, your life is no different from that of others. You have no faith in Christ at all. So in today's world, that statement, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, might easily be rephrased, Christianity has absolutely no relevance or application to your day-to-day life. It makes no difference whether you're a Christian or not. The only difference is perhaps if you're nearing death and you want to make sure that you get into heaven and you want to make sure that you're forgiven, right? That's the only difference it might make. But day-to-day life totally irrelevant. And if that's all that Christian faith has to offer, well, then no wonder people are increasingly uninterested in Christian faith, uninterested in church, uninterested in following Jesus. Because if that's all there is to Christian faith, if that's all there is to believing in Jesus, then it doesn't actually offer any kind of real transformation as we live our lives. Dallas Willard goes on to offer another image of a barcode scanner at a grocery store. Checkout, right? You ever do self-checkout or, you know, either way, you bring your items to the scanner and... He writes, the scanner responds through its electronic eye to the barcode and totally disregards everything else. If the ice cream sticker is on the dog food, then the dog food is ice cream, at least so far as the scanner knows or cares, right? It doesn't matter what's inside of it. As long as the barcode's right, that's what the scanner's going to read. You see, barcode theology is only interested in the barcode on the outside. Are you forgiven or not? And entirely uninterested about what's on the inside. What is your character? What actions actually flow from your heart? Who are you? Willard sums up all of this as the gospel of sin management. These are just gospels of sin management, merely ways of managing our sins, of manicuring our moral lawns like crisply cut topiaries, right? Just like that. But all of this runs counter to Jesus' teaching in this passage, entirely counter to Jesus' teaching. 
Jesus is not interested in merely managing sin. He wants it entirely removed, completely uprooted. So with these images in mind, we might be able to summarize Jesus' teaching in this passage as, you've heard it was said, trim your topiary. But I tell you, uproot your bushes and plant new gardens. This is what Jesus calls us to. You see, in every instance, Jesus starts by pointing to the tree they've been trimming. The roots they've been ignoring and then pointing them to the growth of the kingdom of God, the new growth of the kingdom of God. In the first case, murder is the tree that they've been trimming. Like, don't do that. Okay, everyone agrees. But then he points them to the roots of rage and contempt that they've been ignoring. And then ultimately, he points them toward reconciliation as the new growth of the kingdom. Then in the next instance, adultery is the tree they've been trimming. Don't do that. But then Jesus points them to the roots of lust that they've been ignoring. And ultimately, to the new growth of faithfulness and loyalty in the kingdom of God. On and on it goes throughout the passage. Don't just trim the tree. Get down to the roots. Uproot them so that God can plant something new. All of this culminates at the very end of the passage whenever Jesus calls all the roots of sin to be removed and instead be replaced with the unconditional, all-pervasive love of God for friends and enemies alike. Whenever that kind of love pervades a person and their character, that's what it means to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It means to live the way that God loves. Now, we don't have time to address every single thing in this passage. We'd be here for the rest of the day. Uh, perhaps we can go deeper in next Sunday's conversation hour and talk about some more of these things. But what I would like to do is share with you one observation and two things that I have found really helpful as I consider this passage. So first, one observation. Jesus' words here, again, are precisely the opposite of the bumper sticker barcode gospels of sin management that Dallas Willard points to. Right? Those are completely irrelevant to our daily life. They offer no practical bearing on our everyday experience. But on the completely opposite side, can you imagine anything more relevant than what Jesus is teaching here? 
I mean, how often do you want to push away someone or something that you don't like, that you'd rather not deal with? How often do you desire something that you don't have, and that desire takes over? How often do you want to manipulate situations to your advantage? How often do you want to get even with those who've wronged you? I mean, is there a day that goes by where none of these occur? Is there a day that goes by where not all of them occur, if we're honest? Right? These things drive us in so much of our lives. Jesus' teaching here is eminently practical and has utter bearing on everyday life. Anger, lust, control, revenge, these are the things that hijack our lives and run us into the ground over and over and over again. We become captive to cycles of sin and often end up watering the weeds instead of digging them up. I want you to hear this. Jesus does not give these instructions because he is a joyless prude trying to control your life. Jesus gives these instructions because he wants you to have a truly joyful life, free from all of these fixations that are already controlling you. Jesus knows that we're captive to these things. And he wants us to be free of them. That's why he calls us to this deep inner work. Just imagine how light and free you would feel if anger were not constantly simmering deep down, ready to erupt. Imagine how light and free you would feel if lust wasn't constantly calling your eyes and your actions to where they should not go. Imagine how light and free you would feel if you didn't always have to be in control of every situation. Imagine how light and free it would be if you weren't always concerned about looking good and you could simply be good. This is the kind of life that Jesus wants for us. This is the kind of life that Jesus wants for you. That's why he calls us to die to sin and to uproot the things that control us. His words here are eminently practical and have the potential to utterly transform every moment of our existence.
starting now. So that's something that I observe in this passage. Second, I want to share something that I found helpful. When Dallas Willard writes about the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that he emphasizes is that this, these chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, are not just a random collection of Jesus' teachings that were stuffed together into a few chapters of the Bible. Rather, these teachings all go together and build on each other. And we see that at work in the passage we're looking at today, this second part of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus begins by addressing anger and contempt. Then he moves to lust and sex. Then he moves to marriage, where anger and sex can become a dangerous combination, leading to much abuse. Then he moves further as he addresses this, uh, saying that contempt and lust can often lead to these divorces that needed not happen if only that contempt and that lust had been uprooted. And that kind of divorce is a sort of oath-breaking, where there's a lack of integrity. It's a failure of letting yes be yes and no be no. All of these things build on one another as he teaches them. As Jesus teaches these things, it invites us to consider the ways that sin builds upon sin in our lives. I was recently talking with a guy struggling with lust in his life. And the typical response to that is, you know, oh, I know I need to stop. I know that's not right. And that's true. But as we continued talking, continued seeing what was going on here and reflecting, what we discovered is that his temptation to lust was actually a surface-level coping mechanism to distract him from his deeper need to be in control. Because it's when he feels like life is going out of control that he starts to turn toward lust. That's sin building upon sin. We have this sin, this need to control everything, to to know what's going to happen. And that's a sin in and of itself. But sin builds upon sin. We cope with that sin by turning to yet another sin. Sin has this way of building upon sin and snowballing into a multi-layered mass of destruction in our lives. And as Jesus teaches us here, he shows us how this begins to occur, how sin builds upon sin, and it grips us like quicksand. But thanks be to God, Jesus shows us the way out. And it involves going deep and figuring out what's going on underneath all of this. Not just cleaning up the surface, but digging down to our hearts.
Here's another thing that I found really helpful as I consider these themes of dying to sin. Uh, there's a professor named Robert Mulholland who wrote a book called Invitation to a Journey about the, the spiritual journey and what, it, what it's like to go on, on this spiritual journey of being formed into the image of Jesus. And part of that journey is having sin stripped away. And he describes sin in four layers. And I think it's, it's really clarifying and helpful. The four layers he provides is this. He says there's gross sin, not gross like ew, uh, but gross like major, uh, gross sin. And then there's deliberate sin or conscious sin. And then there's unconscious sin. And then beneath all of that, there's deep-seated sin. And so what are these? Uh, gross sin is, is the stuff that, you know, Jesus says initially, you've heard that it was said, right? Murder, adultery, uh, lying, right? I mean, some of the, these are things that are just obvious, like, yeah, that's, that's wrong. Pretty much everyone agrees these aren't okay, <laughs> right? That's, that's the just major obvious sins that, you know, our society still mostly collectively agrees, yeah, we shouldn't do this. But then below that, there are these deliberate or conscious sins. And those are things that are not the way of Jesus. But sometimes we embrace them. Sometimes we get away with them. Sometimes we even like them. Uh, you know, things like gossip. It's not exactly lying, but it's certainly not honorable, and it may not be telling the truth. Um, you know, it's, it's things like uh, embracing uh, inappropriate scenes, perhaps, in movies. Well, I'm not, it's, I mean, it's not exactly lust, but like, I don't mind seeing it, uh, you know? And so it's just embraced by our culture, celebrated. These are things we know are not right. We know they're not the way of Jesus, but if we're just following the current of the world we live in, we'll do them. We'll participate in them. Those are deliberate sins that need to be stripped away. But then beneath that, there's another layer he talks about of unconscious sins. These are the kinds of sins of omission, right? Jesus says, don't murder. And then he says, you know, don't uh, be angry and, and curse at your brother or sister. But then he also says, and go be reconciled to them, right? And a lot of times we just never go there. We just kind of live a life of, well, I mean, I didn't kill anyone today and I'm not seething with rage, so I'm good. But deep down, we don't want to be reconciled. We don't want to do the hard work of actually loving our enemies, right? That's the unconscious sin. That part that is not actively, we're not necessarily aware of it, but it's a part of us that resists the way of Jesus. It's a part of us that resists the kingdom of God. And then finally, he describes this thing called deep-seated sin. 
Uh, another way of describing it is sins of attachment. Uh, he says these are sins that deal with our trust structures. This is where we start to realize that uh, we're not just Christians who sin sometimes. We're idol worshipers who love things that are not God. This is where we realize that underneath everything, I'm the one who needs to be in charge. That's why all these other sins keep coming up. It's where we realize deep down there are things that I am committed to that aren't Jesus. Those are things that are really hard to uproot. But if we're going to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, we need to let the Spirit do that deep digging. And we need to bring these things up and uproot them so that new gardens can be planted. So how do we begin entering into this hard work? How do we begin uprooting these things? I want to give you three practices that really just build on one another. The first is awareness. You know, it's how they, they say in, in AA, you, you know, you don't, uh, the, the beginning to solving a problem is admitting that there is one, right? Cultivating an awareness of what are the places where anger, where lust, where dishonesty, and so on become activated in my life. Just pay attention to that. Become aware of those moments. We can't address a problem if we don't admit that there is one. So we need to become aware of the places where there is sin in our lives. And that's all those layers of sin, becoming increasingly aware of them. And once we become aware of them, we're called to confession. We're called to saying, I have sinned, and I'm sorry. And now, uh, we're talking about this recently, you know, there's a passage in 1 John that says, if you confess your sins, then he is faithful to forgive, and that's good. But there's also a passage in James that says, if you confess your sins to one another, you will be healed. It is a good thing to be forgiven as we confess our sins to God, but it is an even more powerful thing to experience healing as we confess our sins to one another. Are we willing to go there with another person and name before a fellow image bearer of God, I have sinned, and allow that person to speak God's grace to us. In the name of Jesus, you are forgiven. That is a healing thing, but it's vulnerable and it's difficult. But I would challenge you that it's worth it to have someone you can be vulnerable with so that you can really experience healing. And then finally, awareness and confession should lead us to repentance. Repentance, which is very simply a word that means to turn. 
It means turning away from sin and from these things, these attachments that have called us to them, and instead turning toward Jesus, who shows us the righteousness of God, who calls us to himself, who says, if you would follow me, deny yourself and take up your cross. Turning away from all other and turning toward him. That's what repentance looks like. Remember, the passage began with Jesus saying, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And the law has been fulfilled in the cross. And so as we follow Jesus to the cross, we see our forgiveness and we receive it. But the cross is also the way that we overcome the sins in our lives and live into the freedom that he purchased for us there. And so may we follow him to the cross and be set free that new life could flourish in us. Amen.